0: Hallelujah. Father, words fall short of describing or cataloging, and our mental capacity is insufficient to contain all of the reasons to stand in awe of you. Suffice it to say this morning, for those that are believers in this room, we stand in awe of you because we are born again. As Peter has instructed the church of imper- of perishable seed, not of perishable seed, but of Imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this resurrecting power that the Holy Spirit has wrought in our souls has lifted us from the miry clay and from the depth, death, and depravity of our sin, and resurrected us unto new life, and placed our feet on solid footing on the rock and cornerstone Jesus Christ. He was the one of whom it was prophesied. He lay in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The stone that the builders rejected Jesus Christ and all of the prophecy and your word that anticipated and proclaimed him and the testimony of those who echoed Lord at your arrival, that the Messiah had come, the word that was proclaimed through John the Baptist announcing your arrival. Father, we confess we have heard this day. Our hearts have been awakened to the reality of Christ come, crucified in our place, resurrected and ascended. And now we confess this morning that all flesh is like grass and all the glory like the flower of the grass which withers and falls. But the word of our Lord remains forever. Now as we turn to your word today, I pray that you would increase our ability to comprehend, understand, to apply, and to proclaim it. I pray that as we turn to your word, you would lift our spirits and encourage and equip us, Lord, even in a day of affliction and testing and trial, that we would realize the superior and sufficient means of grace that we have in your scriptures. I pray that we would be inspired and that we would be, Lord, enabled to understand in more depth and detail the power of your word revealed across the pages of history and it's all of the connections that only the author and finisher of our faith could design and could accomplish. I pray, Lord, that as we behold you in your scriptures today, that you would be further glorified in your church as you erase spots and blemishes from your people, as you prepare us, Lord, for the habitation of glory. I pray that we would be encouraged and strengthened and that you would be glorified all the while. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, this morning we turn together in the Scriptures to Psalm 101. So if you have your Bible handy, would you turn there with me today? In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's holy word. Psalm 101 is a psalm of David, one of just two in the fourth book of the Psalter. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim standards by which every king is measured, and the king of kings is identified. Psalm 101 serves to proclaim standards by which every king is measured, and the idea of king can be expanded to include by way of application every dominion agent, may I suggest. So Psalm 101 holds forth standards by which every king or every dominion agent that would include you and me as believers in this room, by which we are measured, and even perhaps more importantly, standards by which the true king of kings is identified. There have been different titles or references given to Psalm 101 through history. One of our quotes this morning includes this title, Mirror for Magistrates. That's the title of my message today. Psalm 101 could serve as a mirror for magistrates. In other words, a looking glass, a way for them to analyze their rule a way for them to see in light of the standard of God's word where they fall short in their governance of what God's holiness requires. With that introduction, would you stand for the reading of God's word today out of reverence and awe at these words that are preserved for our understanding? Hear now the holy word of God in Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O oh Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O, oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the works of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes." Final verse 8. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is the word of God. You may be seated. A mirror for magistrates. William Binning, a commentator and author, writes concerning Psalm 101, quote, This is the psalm which the old expositors used to designate the mirror for magistrates. An excellent and an excellent mirror it is. It would mightily accelerate the coming of the time when every nation shall be Christ's possession and every capital a, quote, city of the Lord. If all magistrates could be persuaded to dress themselves by it every time they go forth to perform the functions of their godlike office. So you see, in this bit of commentary, William Benny is recognizing the superior standard of Psalm 101 and its instructions for every ruler, every individual, in authority. His contention is, is if rulers in our day and every day, in every capital city, every national leader, anyone who holds a position of influence over others, if they were to take seriously the admonition, the correction, and the discipline shaping power of Psalm 101, they would hasten the day when the when the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and their nation would be blessed as the scriptures say, "Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord." Psalm 101 is a votive royal psalm of David. Votive is the adjective form of vow. Royal, of course, refers to monarch or kingdom. Psalm of David, you know who he is. It is a votive psalm in that its context is that of vows expressed by the author and worshiper. Anyone who takes Psalm 101 on their lips seriously is making a series of vows. We'll demonstrate that in a moment. It is a royal psalm. It is written by Israel's great king. Israel's king David wrote this psalm and therefore it is a royal psalm, a psalm of a king a Psalm for kings, if you will, with specific reference to the responsibilities of a monarch, a magistrate, a ruler, a king, a president, really, as we said, anyone in authority. It is one of the songs penned by David, which appear in, or is one of few songs penned by David, which appear in book number four, this section of the Psalter. The only other one, to my knowledge, is Psalm 103. There are several references. Furthermore, to the application and use of Psalm 101 in the context of civil government, across that I came across in my study, and these are references in history uh, after the Bible was written. Ernest the Pious was the name of a Duke of Sax Gotha, and in his biography, one author remembers he uh, points out that he is remembered for reprimanding unfaithful officers in his realm unfaithful leaders in his country, if you will, by sending them a copy of Psalm 101 when they had fallen short of their duty. In other words, when those kings and officers, or when those officers under his rule fell short, failed to uphold their duty to do justly, to rule rightly, then he would send them a copy of Psalm 101 and tell them to repair to that standard. Another author Arthur Stanley remarks how Psalm 101 was beloved through the ages, has been beloved through the ages by important figures through history, from Russian princes like Vladimir Monomakos to English reformers like Nicholas Ripley. And he writes the following, quote, speaking of this psalm, it is full of stern exclusiveness, of a noble intolerance, not theological error, not courtly manners, or political insubordination, but against the proud of heart, high look, the secret slanderer, the deceitful worker, and the teller of lies. These are the ones who uh, David, parenthetically, these are the ones who David condemns in this text. These, he continues, are the outlaws from King David's court. Psalm 101 refuses, it excludes certain outlaws from the council from the fellowship, from the court, from the ruling privilege of David's administration. Who are they? They are the ones who have a proud heart, a high look, their secret slanders, their deceitful workers, their tellers of lies. These character flaws David recognizes and determines as disqualifying for the role of just ruler. In contrast, to uh, the kingdom of Saul, who preceded him, David resolves to uphold righteousness and restore honor, integrity to the society of Israel. Psalm 101 emphasizes the relationship between leadership and personal integrity. The Lord looks on the heart and judges by that standard of personal integrity, whether someone is fit for office. And this becomes a principle. The rest of scripture echoes all the way into We'll probably touch on a reference at least later in the message into the New Testament. Psalm 101 emphasizes again that the the individual who is qualified to rule takes seriously the law and word of God. This psalm therefore stands in condemnation in so many cases of our current political order. The order and construction of our society as it stands today, Psalm 101 condemns the moral standards of our statesmen these days, more often than not. And so, if we are to follow the instructions of David, we must send, if you will, Psalm 101 to our leaders via proclamation, via the testimony of our own integrity, and by prayer, and to send a message, send the message of Psalm 101 to those who need to hear it and will be judged by its standards. The royal application of Psalm 101 in this case, is a given. But let me just note further that every believer is called to rule and reign with Christ. And as such, the term technically is vicegerent, which means co-ruler. Every believer has a calling to rule and reign with Christ. And as such, the principles of Psalm 101 should be taken to heart by every true believer in every station of life. And as we do so, we recognize that these ideals are perfectly embodied in the greatest king, Jesus Christ, the son of David. So a little introduction for the usefulness, the application, the importance on a personal level, and even up to an administrative level for the governance of nations that Psalm 101 serves. Let me give you a heading as we consider this psalm in three sections this morning. The heading is as follows, the king, or you could say dominion agent, must give an account for the following. The king must give an account, number one, for his personal affections, verses 1 through 4. The king or dominion agent must also give an account for his judgments, verses 5 and 6. And finally, the king must give an account for his jurisdictions. That would be areas that he's in charge of, his responsibilities, verses 7 and 8. So personal affections, judgments, and jurisdictions. Those are the three main sections of our psalm as we consider the standards by which every king or dominion agent is measured, and also the standards that are perfectly embodied in the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Uh, young people, kids, do you remember the stop game? You remember this game? All right. So you guys remember the rules. When you hear a certain word or phrase, you tell me to stop, okay? Everyone remember how this goes? Yep. So when you hear the phrase, I will, tell me to stop. Got it? Okay, let's count them. Here we go. A Psalm of David. I will sing, that's number one, of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music, Two. I will ponder the way, catch it? I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk, that's four, with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set... My eye, before my eyes, anything that is worthless. I hate the works of those who fall away. All oh, close. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing. Six, right? Of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Eight. I will look with favor. Very good. Nine. On the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. How many times, kids? Was Ten times. So ten times the phrase, I will, appears in Psalm 101. Good job in the stop game. So we point that out to emphasize that these are vows. Each time David says, I will, he's making a, sovereign, or a solemn promise before the Lord to act in a certain way. This is an extremely serious psalm. We understand the seriousness of vows, some uh, culturally in the example of marriage, let's say. A marriage ceremony is such that it's a specific time set apart for a solemn occasion. Something serious is going on. A man and wife, according to the scriptures, according to God's ordination of this covenant bond, have, are leaving their family as they've known it, and they're cleaving to one another to become a new family. And as they stand before these witnesses, and most importantly, before the Lord, in that ceremony, they make vows. They exchange vows. The minister says, Do you promise to have and to hold till death? Do you part in kids? What does the bride or groom say? The, the minister says, Do you promise to have and to hold till death? Do you part? And then they say something like, What? I will or I do, right? And so that is a statement of vow. And in a similar fashion, Psalm 101 is ordered as a vow type ceremony almost, or a statement a solemn confession of promise and purpose to will and to do, to act according to a certain standard. As such, the king must give an account for the vows that he takes. And this first section of Psalm 101, he makes vows as to his personal affections. Notice in verse 1, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. That is, I promise to worship the Lord through song in this artistic expression of the soul to direct my attention, my worship, my praise to to God and his attributes. I will sing of his steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will, second, vow, make music. The king must give an account for his personal affections. To whom does he offer his praise? To whom does he give his expressions of glory? Now at first, this might appear surprising because usually when people think of the highest office in the land, they think they are the one who receives the praises of the people. And David was no stranger to receiving the accolades, the praises of the people. Remember kids after David defeated Goliath and he came back to Israel and the Philistines were routed, they were destroyed in this campaign. David was the war hero, and there was a parade in the streets. And so David is in this parade, and people are shouting their praises to him, if you will. They say Saul has killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. They're celebrating his exploits in war. And in that moment, David was the object of people's praises, if you will. But David did not receive those praises as if he himself deserved them. David instead praised someone greater than him. David was, um, uh, he was a minister of the Lord. He was a musician, and he wrote songs just like this one we read today out of his devotion and his service and his tangible, uh, purposeful, deliberate expression of worship to a greater king. The king, the dominion agent, must give an account for his personal affections. He must answer to the Lord who is greater than him. He must worship the Lord and realize that he serves under an authority himself. In Daniel chapter 4, it seems like I'm constantly referring in moments like these or when we have uh, sections of scripture that refer to the responsibilities of the sovereign. Seems like I'm constantly referring to this example just because it's such a classic one. Just to recall the case of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's on the roof of his royal palace. He's looking across the landscape of his kingdom and his realm. And he says, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. See, he is reveling in his royal residence and he is receiving all of the glory. He's celebrating himself and he is full of himself in his pride and his arrogance And he looks at the testimony of his exploits and figures he deserves the glory. And what does God do? God strikes Nebuchadnezzar down and causes him to eat grass in verse 32 like an ox. And this condemnation of Nebuchadnezzar is conditional. That is to say, he can stop acting like a cow only when he acknowledges that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And on the day that Nebuchadnezzar repented, he was restored from this humiliated position of eating grass like an unreasoning beast. And he says in verse 34, at the end of my days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high and praised and honored him who lives forever. Then here we have a record of his praise, his song, if you will. In verse 34, he says this, for his dominion, speaking of the God, the sovereign over him is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then he says that upon this confession, his reason returned to him and so forth. And he says, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So you see, in that instance, the heart of Nebuchadnezzar changes from the heart of most rebellious kings, of basking in their own glory, to confessing, similar to David in Psalm 101, that he serves at the pleasure of a greater king still, and to him... He is the one, the Lord, Yahweh, who is worthy because of his steadfast love, because of his justice. He is the one who is truly worthy of our praise and the praises of every king, leader, and anyone who has ever been born, no matter uh, what station of life. Their personal affections of the kings and dominion agents of this world are held accountable. They must give their expressions of worship to the sovereign over them. Furthermore, David speaks of the meditations of his soul. He says in verse 2, I will ponder the way that is blameless. His third vow. I will ponder, that is, I will meditate, I will think, I will process, I will reason. I will seek with intellectual fervor the way that is blameless. Turn to Deuteronomy 17. So many of the Psalms are the overflow of a meditation on the word of God. Perhaps the most striking example of this is Psalm 19 itself, where the laws of God are celebrated in the longest chapter of all Scripture. And Psalms like this, especially Psalm 101, are fitting expressions of a king if he was to obey the instructions that were given him in the Holy Scriptures. For instance, in Deuteronomy 17, there are instructions for the king. Notice verse 18. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. I should back up a little bit to grab the context here. Verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set a king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. He shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excess silver or gold. And then our central reference here, verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a a book, a copy of this law approved, by the Levitical priests. Now you may notice there that virtually all of these prohibitions were violated by Solomon, David's son. He did compile or acquire for himself many wives and horses, a mighty um, army and great riches and treasure chest and all the political alliances which required him to compromise his uh, testimony to the truth in all of the various marriages to the ungodly and pagan daughters of the nations around him, and so forth. But this was against God's law. God's law had told Israel that when a king was set over them, he must write for himself in a book a copy of all the law of God. And that copy had to be certified, authentic, by the priests of that day. The Levites, who were trained and experts in the word of the Lord, had to look at the copy of the law that the king wrote down and judge whether or not he truly understood and truly had retained in his heart the statutes and ways of the Lord. David took this command seriously. Thus, when he writes Psalm 1012, that should be in the background of our understanding. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? Pondering the way that is blameless would have included by way of application, David writing down, with his own hand, the entire law of the Lord. Presumably, the first five books of the Old Testament, David was extremely familiar with. And day in and day out, he did his due diligence, seeking the law of the Lord. And then he has this expression, Oh, oh when will you come to me? The meditations of David's soul were held accountable, or his vow, at least, was to hold them accountable to the word of God. Not only does he say, I will ponder the blameless way, but he also expresses this desire that the Lord in his presence would be with him. On further reflection of the context of David's rule, this could likely refer to the returning of the Ark of the Covenant into the presence of the people and into a central location. So that David's desire to see the Ark return to its prominent position demonstrated his heart that he would not rule as a law unto himself or as a king that was lusting after glory whereby he could promote his own legacy, but instead that he would be a king in right and righteous standing with the Lord, acknowledging a greater king still through his singing and his praises. Thus David praised the Lord and humbled himself even on, upon that ceremonious return of the Ark of the Covenant to the presence of the people." Oh, when will you come to me? I will ponder the way that is blameless. This votive language, these vows that David makes, they underscore this fact that the king, or you could say any dominion agent, must give an account for his personal affections. Are his meditations, are his ambitions, are his uh, worshipful expressions accountable to the Lord? Even the ambitions of David's heart, he recognized needed to be set aright with the law of God. He says in 2b, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Within my house is a key phrase there. You can mark it. It will return in the text in verse 7. He goes further, verse 3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the works of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. There are a few phrases of note here before my eyes. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Cross-reference this with our Genesis study in this phrase of lifting up the eyes. We've studied this a bit because we see it as an expression that describes the affections, the desires, the motives, the ambitions of an individual. Remember Lot? He lifted up his eyes to the fertile valleys of the Jordan area, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the promise and the wealth and the prosperity that were promised by the cities of the plains. The only problem was that to move there was to put yourself in the dangerous way. You could become influenced by the pagan cities around them. And then you were further removed from that relationship to the covenantally favored man of God, Abram. Nevertheless, Lot moved and pitched his tents on the outskirts of Sodom. It gets closer and closer still until we find him one day, even in the gates of Sodom itself. Why do we find him there? It's because he had set Sodom before his eyes. He had set the wealth of Gomorrah before his eyes. He had set the green fields of the pagan lands and the promise of prosperity before his eyes. He had lifted up his eyes to this promise that felt short of the promises of God. A king will be held accountable for the ambitions of his heart. Why is he motivated to serve? What is the, to what purpose does he organize his affairs? What goal does he truly have in mind? Is it himself and his own glory? Is, does he seek the wealth and the vitality of his kingdom in order that the historians of future generations may write favorably of his administration? Or does he recognize that he should not set before his eyes anything self-centered, idolatrous, that the world and fleeting prosperity promises. Anything of this sort is worthless and it will not pass the test of time. Remember what happens to the things of the flesh? The grass withers, the flesh withers and falls just like the grass and flower of the field, but the word of the Lord stands forever. The reason we're reading a psalm written by a king today. I mean, think of how many kings have lived and died. And we don't even know their names. But there are exceptions among them. David is one. And the reason we are reading of his legacy and of his song right here is because David took a vow to honor the Lord and not himself. He recognized the importance of setting his eyes and took a commitment to do the same To the Lord are setting before his eyes, not the worthless things that motivate most kings in their sinful fallenness, but instead the things that endure far beyond the corruptible riches this world and this realm, this fallen world has to offer. He goes on to add even stronger language still, I hate the works of those, or I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. This, in, in this statement, David rejects the legacy of the covenant breakers who spurn the word of God as a means of promoting themselves. Covenant breakers, they reject and they contradict and they mock and they marginalize the word of God as a means of promoting themselves. And if you look at the political landscape of our day, this is taking place all over and everywhere you turn. The word of God is sacrificed as a means of promoting our own ideas. Ourselves or catering to the uh, misguided affections of the voting block, of this special interest or that special interest. David says, a perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And when he says, I will know nothing of evil, in the context of the original language, it's not an intellectual ignorance. Like I don't, I'm not even aware that evil exists. That's not what he means. What he means is he will not have a close personal association or relationship with the evil ways of the kings around him. He will not follow the model of success that has led to the temporal prosperity of the nations that surround the borders of this land. He will not fall in his commitment here. Uh, he is saying, I, he will not fall by the same pitfalls and trappings of Solomon and other kings that would follow him, whose heart was given over to the idolatry of the age and the worldview and the spirit, the zeitgeist of that era, which caused them, their foot, feet to stumble and the foundation of their rule to be compromised. Now, later in this text, we'll address contradiction and contradictions in David himself. Over the course of his biography, David fell short of his own standard. Nevertheless, Psalm 101 stands as the inspired word of God. It is a standard by which David and every other king will be judged. He will be judged by his personal affections. What of the ambitions of his heart? So that's point number one. The king or dominion agent must give an account for his personal affections, his expressions of worship, the meditations of his soul, the ambitions of his heart. Major point number two, the king must give an account for his judgments, how he rules, his actions, the things that he endeavors to do, his policies policies that he seeks to implement. Verses five and six speak to these. Verse five, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Verse six, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. There are two types of judgments. Verse five would be punitive judgments. It would be judgments of punishment variety. And the second category of judgment is charitable judgments, judgments of mercy. And this recalls the opening of the psalm when David says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. David recognizes in studying the word of God, and the nature of God revealed in his holy law, that there is this beautiful balance of justice and mercy. And in further revelation, we find that no, there is a no more perfect expression of the reconciliation of justice and mercy than on the cross of Jesus Christ, the son of David. A righteous and just God must punish sin proportionally, but a merciful And a God of steadfast love and kindness finds a way to ransom his people in spite of their sin. And how are these two compatible? How can they be reconciled? Only when the just wrath that we deserve is taken by a perfect substitute sacrifice, Jesus Christ. So here David, the type of Christ who went before... The king who foreshadowed, who prefigured a greater king to come is celebrating these aspects of God's kingly character, steadfast love and justice. And he is making a vow to rule in his judgments when appropriate according to the justice of a holy God and when appropriate according to the mercy of a holy God. But in so doing, he anticipates a greater king still. Who on his death on Calvary satisfied the justice our sin deserved, even in that same act, granting us the mercy to all who look upon him who's made a curse for us, granting us the mercy that renders us in his favor, in good standing, to be counted among the faithful in the land. Punitive judgments. Notice uh, in the context of our message here what the, uh, the writer that we referenced before, Arthur Stanley, he recognizes that Psalm 101 is full of stern exclusiveness a noble into- and a noble intolerance. Stern exclusiveness and a noble intolerance. That is to say, a king who rules rightly must give an account for his punitive judgments. It is wrong for him to sacrifice the righteousness of God. He must uphold God's standard of truth. This is universally affirmed throughout the scriptures. He is the agent of God, the minister or deacon of God, Paul says in Romans, to execute his judgments and his punishments within his realm, according to his law, rightly. The government or the the magistrate does not bear the sword in vain, in the words of Paul. Another reference to David's vow or a a reference similar to David's vow. David says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Think of this in the context of David's own experience. David knew firsthand the victimhood of neighbor slander as Saul set out to ruin him on false pretense. So uh, Saul sought to paint David as an enemy of the state and then tyrannically pursued him for years and years. And David lived because of this maligning and malicious slander of Saul, who is jealous of David and the anointing that God gave him. He lived as a fugitive and an exile for years and years. David knew firsthand what breaking the civic obligation of God's law, of love for neighbor, meant to an individual. And so David makes a vow. When he is king, he will not entertain anyone in his court He will not suffer anyone to rule under him. He will not glean for himself any cabinet member who unjustly, motivated by slander, by jealousy, and so forth, secretly does harm to his neighbor. David makes a vow that he will not allow that sort of thing to be tolerated in his realm. Again, stern exclusiveness and noble intolerance. He furthermore says that whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, he will not endure. He will not stand to gather for himself power-hungry, ambitious, motivated yes-men who will seek higher and higher places of authority, kissing up, if you will, to the king in order to fulfill their lust for power. David makes a commitment to shun the haughty looks and the arrogant heart. These men will probably be the most likely to ascend the rungs of ladder if the righteous standards of God were not enforced and upheld. And we see that in our own land. There are politicians who are seeking to buy the office of president to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars in our day right now. And they're doing so to negotiate themselves into a position where they, most often, I suggest, motivated by haughty looks and arrogant heart, can presume to rule and to govern over more and more segments of the population and to be celebrated as the person, the individual, who holds out hope for America's future, and so on and so forth. David made a commitment to recognize and to analyze the character of those who sought power within his realm and to reject those who had a haughty look and an arrogant heart again stern exclusiveness and noble intolerance. This cuts against the grain of the prevailing values of our day. Tolerance, tolerance, tolerance is preached in our land. So much so that the application of it means that we must entertain and even celebrate all kinds of sin. Not just those who have a haughty look and an arrogant heart, but who arrogantly And haughtily, if you will, redefine their own identity to include all sorts of perversions. And so we are instructed by the new law of our day to tolerate them. And so the political class makes promises all the time that they will tolerate uh, those who have broken God's law and are seeking their own power and seeking their own uh, self-identity independent of what God has commanded. And David says in this psalm that a king must give an account for his judgments. Will he stand, take a stand for righteousness? David worked out the consequences of personal ethics, recognizing that their effects influenced an entire nation And the impulse of selfish desires, given the power of politics with its array of officers and influences could be absolutely devastating to the people. You might ask this question, boy, David's judgments seem harsh, do they not? But notice, those who have greater authority have a higher standard of righteousness. Those whose decisions affect more people are obligated to be even more careful as to their Uh, as to their character and how they conduct themselves. Because David knows that those who are elevated and promoted in positions of authority will affect and have a direct, um, and the fruit of their decisions will be directly felt and magnified throughout the kingdom. Therefore, he says, he will not tolerate any of this idolatry and self-promotion within his realm. The king or the dominion agent must give an account for his punitive judgments. Will he enforce God's law? And will he be willing to state that there are consequences for breaking it? Will he be willing to take a stand for righteousness? And then the second portion, what of his charitable judgments? David says, conversely in verse 6, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. Perhaps the greatest illustration of this in David's own testimony is in 2 Samuel chapter 9. We won't turn there, but I'll just summarize. There was a relative of Jonathan, David's close friend, who was also the son of Saul. His name was Mephibosheth. Hard to say, but fun to say. Mephibosheth. So this guy was lame. He would not be an imposing personality. And he was rejected and he was scared because now there there had been a shift. He didn't know what his future would hold for him. But David is, after taking the throne, he's not thinking of himself and his own authority. He's not thinking malicious and spiteful thoughts of stamping out everyone connected to Saul's reign and family. Instead, he asked, is there a son of Saul still alive that I might show him favor? favor? And the answer is, yes, there is a relative of Jonathan who still remains, though he is lame, Mephibosheth. So David reaches out to this man, welcomes him into the council, into his palace, into his care. He looks with favor on the faithful in the land. This lame man who was a victim of life's circumstances and who was a perfect example of the least and the lowly and the downtrodden and the broken, the rejected and the least of these among the society, the poor, the impoverished and the vulnerable, David went the extra mile in his position to seek out the welfare of those who are least able to defend themselves. I hope the application of abortion jumps into your mind as I'm saying this. You see, David's testimony in reaching out to Mephibosheth is he extended to him the help that his office could afford to those who are least able to defend themselves. Do our politicians today do the same for the vulnerable and the defenseless? You can't get any more vulnerable and defenseless than those who are in the womb. But Charles Schumer, Chuck Schumer, the minority leader of the Senate of these United States, said this last week in a pro-abortion rally in Washington, D.C., the capital city of this land, that the Supreme Court justices had better rule against a law in Louisiana requiring abortion doctors to have admitting privileges to a hospital within 30 miles of their clinic, just in case something went wrong. He called out justices who might pass a law that says that those provisions must be in place as wicked and said, you better watch out and made threats against them, indicating that the heart of Chuck Schumer would be that his punitive judgments are reserved for those who seek and even that token and infinitesimal measure to restrict to some minute degree, the destruction of the child and the unborn. Those are the ones he would seek to destroy. This individual and all who share anywhere close to that sensibility need a copy of Psalm 101. They need to know that they are responsible and will be held accountable to these standards. That they must look with favor on the faithful in the land. That they must walk in a way that is blameless. And the ones who minister to them are not the ones who are well-connected, who lust after power, and who are those who would... uh, vote for them just because they could promise all sorts of things, breaking the law of God around them. But instead, the leaders of our nation to need to repent and reject those with haughty look and arrogant heart and protect and defend and promote righteousness, that their charitable judgments would be extended to those who cannot help themselves. That is their calling. That is their reason for existence. And they need to be called to repentance. The judgments of the king... Will be held accountable. He must give an account for them. They must be held accountable to God's word. His judgments along the lines of punishment, his judgments along the lines of charity. And by this standard, you see in so many ways in our land, our rules are complete, our laws and our standards are completely upside down. And David calls us through Psalm 101 to repent. Final point this morning the king or the dominion agent must give an account for his jurisdictions. That, would mean, that means his realms of authority. Notice verse 7 and 8. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. There's that phrase again, in my house. Within my house, it's echoed in verse 2, echoing verse 2. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked Excuse me, in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. There are three references to jurisdiction or realm. One is house, household, in verse 7, and then two in verse 8. One is the land, and then thirdly, the city. The dominion agent must give an account for his responsibilities, his jurisdictions, starting with his household. David has said as much already, I will walk with integrity within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless verse 7 no one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house other historical references and commentary to psalm 101 have entitled the psalm the household psalm the householder's psalm we're using the working title mirror for magistrates but another working title uh, in history has been the householder's psalm in other words the psalm that instructs the leader of the household how what his responsibilities are Now, this principle of domestic policy beginning in the home as qualifications for leadership is echoed throughout the scripture. This becomes, or this is a standard that uh, Paul himself references in the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy 3, verse 4 and 5 echo the same sentiment. Notice he, speaking of an overseer, like an elder candidate, He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Later in verse 12, this similar standard is echoed for deacons. Let deacons each be the the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. David understood this that a king who is qualified to rule will not practice deceit and will not allow deceit to be to dwell in his house he will seek to walk with integrity within the boundaries of his own home his palace is to be a model of godly rule this underscores the truth that the basic order of society begins with the basic order of the home we will not there is no hope for america to be reordered without order beginning in the households. And so, even as I have made some particular pointed applications in this sermon to those who are in positions of power over us, we can point to ourselves in our own homes and realize that repentance begins in the house of God. Repentance begins in our own homes. Do we share the vow of David? Do we take it seriously that we will walk with integrity of heart within our houses? Do we take seriously the charge, as every dominion agent should, listen to husbands, fathers, that we will not allow deceit to be practiced within the boundaries, within the borders of our own home? Because you see, within this jurisdiction, we have authority and responsibility. How will we be judged? And what standard do we look to to know how to do this rightly? We look to the standard of God's word. God's Word, which tells us that the household is a proving ground of character, preparing or demonstrating, or as a litmus test, our qualifications for leadership. Now, one practical application is that we would make the Lord central to our households, that we would extol Him. This is a great argument for family worship. We could echo David's commitment by singing of the Lord's steadfast love and justice each day in our homes to make music to him and to ponder his way that is blameless within the boundaries, within the borders of our households. And then and only then will the seed of reform and revival and repentance begin to take root and then to grow into stronger social order as the convictions of households who love the Lord Jesus and build their family on the rock of Jesus Christ begin to have an effect throughout the further concentric circles of society. This is a jurisdiction that David was mindful of. He was also mindful of the jurisdiction beyond him of the city and the land. He understood that the land promise made to Abram included this entire realm that he was in charge of. Thus he says in verse 8, Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land. Morning by morning. This is poetic language that indicates a consistency a dependability, a resolve, and not flashes of inspiration, but a faithfulness. This morning-by-morning morning, language indicates an unwavering commitment to righteously defending the Lord's city from any and all invaders. On, the ins, on internal invaders, the heart and the mindset of the people, and external invaders as well, especially in the case of David. We should defend the realms that God has given us the jurisdictions that he has put us in charge of, consistently with an unwavering resolve and commitment that righteousness would be defended. And we recognize as we do so, this really isn't our city. David, notice, doesn't refer to his city or the city of David, although others refer, and the scriptures themselves refer to Jerusalem as the city of David. David refers to the city as the city of the Lord. He understands in this language in verse 9, when he says that he has made a vow to cut off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord, he understands in that language that he is serving in a stewardship role. He is serving in a deputy role. It is God's land. It is God's city. It is indeed even God's household. God had promised him a household, a lineage, a family line. And so when David acknowledges that ultimately this world is the Lord's and all that dwell therein, that shapes his perspective To have all the more fear, all the more concern, all the more dedication to seek out the law of the Lord, to know how to organize the affairs that God had put him in charge of. Everything from his palace, from his home, from his household, to the extending by way of application through the land and the central location of God's purposes geographically at the time, the city of the Lord. As we bring this message to a close, Again, by way of summary, we've considered that the king or the dominion agent must give an account for his personal affections, his judgments, and his jurisdictions. So how does David measure up? One cannot help but notice in the account of David's own biography, the Bible tells us of many of his failings after all, we can't help but notice, by David's biography, the periods in David's life where his own words in Psalm 101 condemn him. Psalm 101 condemns David in his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. Psalm 101 condemns David when he seeks out Uriah by way of his soldiers and to murder him, to catch him, to put him in the thick of the battle. Psalm 101 condemns David when he walks in that era of his life without integrity, living a lie. What of this contradiction? Well, here at this point, we're reminded in songs like these, that as David speaks, he is assuming the voice of his own lineage. In other words, Psalm 101 is perfectly spoken by only one king. That is the true king of kings, Jesus Christ. This Psalm of David is, in fact, a Psalm of the son of David. And thank God for him. Thank God for his kingdom. Thank God for his character. Thank God for his perfect righteousness. In his work on Calvary, as we mentioned, that is Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Son of David, justice and mercy are perfectly reconciled. And in his final judgment, the Son of David, the true King of Kings, the city of the Lord is finally rid of all unrighteousness. So who is really able, ultimately speaking, to satisfy perfectly These 10 vow statements of Psalm 101, there is only one, it is Jesus Christ. And while we look to him as our righteousness, and we look to his word to shape our decisions, our convictions, and our own vows, we recognize, ultimately speaking, it is him and him alone who can establish hope for the future, secure the jurisdictions of his realm, usher in a lasting, true, and thriving kingdom. He is the ultimate sovereign. He is the son of David who has come. Let me close with a quote from John Calvin. He says of Psalm 101, As the kingdom of David was only a faint image of the kingdom of Christ, we ought to set Christ before our view, who although he may bear with many hypocrites, yet as he will be the judge of the world, will at length call them all to an account, and separate the sheep from the goats. If it seems to us that he tarries too long, we should think of that morning which will suddenly dawn, that all filthiness being purged away, true purity may shine forth. And what John Calvin is reminding us in the scope of God's work in history is that there is a king who reigns right now, Jesus Christ. And there is a kingdom that is established and will continue to demonstrate its power as purity and holiness is a, a, of the church is being accomplished through ransoming and redeeming a people, defeating his enemies. And that kingdom will be established and consummated in perfection. And on that final day, there will be a judgment as well. A judgment that will kick out all of the wicked in the land as Revelation confirms and tells us the adulterer and the liar and the cheater and the fraud and the coward and so forth and the perverse will be kicked out of that land. That glorious exclusive beauty, the noble intolerance and the the stern exclusiveness of the kingdom of God will be ultimately manifest as the wicked and the evildoer and the goats are separated from the sheep and cast into judgment eternal. Meanwhile, those who place faith in Jesus Christ, the son of David, they will populate as citizens, the new heaven and new earth, the true city of the Lord. These are heavy thoughts. This is a serious psalm. This is a psalm that has implications on into the future and one that ought to shape our patterns of behavior, even now as believers seeking to walk in a manner worthy of our call, but it is also a song that should encourage us to proclaim the reality of the kingdom of God. The Lord might be so gracious to extend through his son who died in our place, opportunity to repent and to join with the only true king and to place their allegiance with him. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, who dwelt among us We thank you for the message of his kingdom. We thank you that he has fulfilled the vows of Psalm 101 perfectly. We thank you that he is establishing his kingdom and his city. We thank you that through him, through salvation, we are members and citizens of his household, of his kingdom, of his realm. I pray, Lord, that we would take to heart the message of Psalm 101 to proclaim his kingdom, his crown rights, and call those who do not bow before his lordship to repentance. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy upon our land. We pray that these words from your scriptures would bring conviction on those who rule, even in places of prominence and influence in our nation, that they might turn from their wickedness, their self-exaltation, that they might confess with Nebuchadnezzar, with King David, that you are the true sovereign, that your steadfast love and justice ought to captivate the attention of everyone, even kings in authority. You are the only one worthy of worship. And so we direct our praises to you today, thanking you for our salvation and praising you for your plans for the future. May we be encouraged and equipped through these truths. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.